Today, let's talk about why we can hold our beliefs with sincere conviction and still be completely respectful of people who don't share them. coffee with Kramer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Kramer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. Now, I'm going to give you fair warning ahead of time on this particular episode that, uh, and I'll, well, I'll illustrate it this way. I remember taking a long hike one time, several hours uh, for me. Uh, it took a few hours to get there. And uh, at the end of it, looking forward to seeing this great waterfall and instead just seeing a tiny trickle of a waterfall. I mean, it was just barely anything. Now, it was it was great. I was glad to see this sort of beautiful but underwhelming feature of nature out in wilderness, but it was a pretty long journey to get there. Well, fair warning. This is a fairly circuitous journey we need to take to get to a fairly small waterfall at the end today, but I think it's worth getting to, and so I encourage you to stick with me uh, along the trail, and it does have to do with how we, uh, ultimately, it has to do with how we interpret and apply passages and teachings and words together. That is how community fits together with the things that we say we believe, even though we internalize our beliefs and we hold them personally. There's something very important about the community in why we hold those beliefs. And I think there's a there's a legitimate reason why that should be important before we really hit the trail in earnest in a minute. Uh, let me point out why it might be worth getting there. You know, there's a there's a significant kerfuffle right now uh, regarding the Baptist faith and message. And if you're not Southern Baptist, I get that this may not affect you directly, but but it is it is important, and it's going to come up in every group, and it has come up in different groups in different ways. And that is, you know, Baptists believe in the autonomy of churches, and we don't believe that a, a hierarchical organization has authority over the churches and stuff like that. Everybody operates independently, so to speak. And yet we cooperate because we share values and we share doctrine, and we're trying to accomplish some things together. And so we've decided to be a confessional denomination to begin with, where we would say, well, if you want to participate with us, you know, you should know kind of what we stand for. So let's give you an explanation of what our understanding of Scripture is. And so we produced the Baptist faith and message, I think, first in 1925 and 1963 in the year 2000, and I'm sure we'll have to do another one before too long. But the point is, it was a confession. These are the things we believe, and you don't have to adopt every branch of it to come and join with us, but you wouldn't want to be a part of us if you don't agree largely with the things that are written here. That was the idea. Well, now this kerfuffle that we're having is over churches that don't agree with certain parts of the Baptist faith and message and aren't practicing them, but still want to be a part 
or were at least, <laughs> wanting to be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so there is, for instance, an example, a question right now, and this is happening this year, there's you know, some resolution trying to be found, uh, a question of whether to exclude from the Southern Baptist Convention any churches which have women as pastors. And then how, and then the other question that goes with that is even how to define what is meant by pastors. And so there are statements in the Baptist faith and message that make that a reasonable question, right? So there's a, a section in there called the church, which says, while both men and women, this is just one little section in it, but it says, and this, this is the one line in the Baptist faith and message everyone has memorized, as if it's the only important thing that a document about the Trinity and salvation and, you know, all of the kingdom of God, uh, this is the one line everyone has memorized, which is sort of, uh, whatever. Anyway, so it is, this is in the section called the church. If you, by the way, if you want to read the Baptist Faith and Message, you can just look it up, Baptist Faith and Message, Southern Baptist Convention, or something like that, and it will come up. It's easy to find. Uh, but it, this is in the section called The Church. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. That's a complementarian reading. It was added in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 because there was a concern about gender roles and, you know, all that kind of stuff going on. And so we had we adopted that in the year 2000, and some people liked the expression, some people didn't like the expression, some people think uh, that it means uh, a woman can't serve as senior pastor, and other people think it only me- that it means women can't do anything to lead any men in the church. And uh, other people think that it means, uh, and these are not exclusive of each other, these last ones that I'm going to comment on, other people think it means that a church which would have a woman as pastor can't be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Other people think, well, it doesn't mean that. It just means that if they do, they should know that most of the churches in the convention don't hold that view, that a woman can be the pastor. And so there's lots of disagreements about how to apply it, but it's important that it actually says it. But you know what's also important is that in that same section on the church, it says each congregation—I've never heard anyone quote this, not lately— Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. That is, the churches are autonomous, and they make their own decisions about what they're going to do. Now, that doesn't exclude the convention from saying, well, you can't be a part of us if you don't do this, because they're not telling the church what they can and can't do as a church. They're telling them what they can and can't do as a part of the convention. So don't be a part of the convention anymore. So I get it that you can respond that way. On the other hand, we don't exclude churches for 20 other lines that are in the Baptist faith and message that people don't practice or agree with or just doesn't show up in what they do, and we just let it go. We don't worry about it. So we're picking and choosing how we want to enforce it because we know how important it is that we do work together, and therefore we want to be able to work together effectively. So I'm not resolving it today. My point isn't to try to solve the issue or to say, can a woman be a pastor? Can't a woman be a pastor? I'm not even trying to address that. Uh, if I'm addressing anything with it, I'm addressing the, the idea that we need to be concerned not only about figuring out how to exclude people from fellowship with us, from involvement in a convention, but also how to work together with people when we do disagree about certain things and why that might be important. 
So I can give other examples of things that are in the Baptist faith and message that that make this challenging for people. For instance, in uh, the Baptist faith and message 2000, in the section on man, it says the sacredness, this is one of the lines in it, the sacredness of human personality is evident in that God created man in his own image and in that Christ died for man. Therefore, and what it used to say back in 1963 was, every man possesses full dignity, blah, blah, blah. Now they change that to say, and this is good, this is a good change. Therefore, every person of every race, instead of just every man, to be specific about saying we can't be prejudicial and maintain this view. Every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. And this is something we embraced readily in the year 2000. I think people know we ought to embrace that idea. Similarly, the Christian and the social order, another section of the Baptist faith and message, says, in the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism. Now, how to do that, and and anybody will say, oh, I oppose racism, anybody. Even people, I think, don't oppose racism. But we believe we're opposing racism, and most people are willing to do some things in their personal life to try to you know, uh, uh, to try to uh, avoid racism or address it one way or the other. Now, I say that, but I'm also saying there is a lot of pushback against people who talk very much about racism in certain ways. This is the point of the Baptist faith and message being written the way it is. This is the point, and I don't, I'm not, again, I'm not here to speak about the Baptist faith and message today. You say, well, it's hard to tell that. I mean, this is all you're talking about. But I'm just bringing it up in the context of thousands of churches that work together, which have thousands of members, some some thousands in just one of those churches, you know, have thousands of members working together in thousands of churches who have a huge range of views on these issues and a tendency to think that if I believe this way about it and you disagree with me, then for me to be honest, I've, got, I've just got to be willing to admit that you must be wrong, just flat out wrong, that there are no other options. Well, on some things, I understand why we would say that. Two plus three is five. It's not four. And if you say it's six, I'm going to say, yeah, that's, that's not right. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't really have to be hostile. don't have to be angry. don't have to use my volume to prove that you're wrong. I but I am. I I think I probably should say no. No, two plus three isn't six. That that's not correct. There are things like that, but there are a lot of things where there's room for disagreement and an acknowledgement that different views may not any fully encompass the entire truth of the matter. That's not the case with everything, but it is the case with some things that we'll get to later. And so that makes this section in the Baptist Faith and Message on cooperation so important. And the statement there is, Christian unity in the New Testament sense is spiritual harmony. I've not heard anybody quote this lately. Christian unity in the New Testament sense is spiritual harmony and voluntary cooperation for common ends by various groups of Christ's people. Cooperation is desirable between, not even just within a denomination, between the various Christian denominations when the end to be attained is itself justified and when such cooperation involves no violation of conscience or compromise of loyalty to Christ and his word as revealed in the New Testament. You say, well, there it says no compromise. No compromise of conscience or of loyalty to Christ or his word is revealed in the New Testament. 
Now, here's what's funny about this. When we, this is, and I, I've dealt with this in great detail with groups. I was on the board of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for years when we were addressing this specific question. And we never broached the word cooperation, instead choosing the word co-belligerency. This is the word, and it's used from Schaefer's days, you know, back in the 70s and 80s when it was a big deal to get people together like Protestants and Catholics and say, we oppose abortion. And so we said, well, how do you justify cooperating with people who don't even believe the same gospel you believe and so on? And the answer was, well, it's necessary sometimes to participate in co-belligerency, right? So we have the same enemy, so we work together to oppose that enemy. And as long as we're not in violation of each other's conscience regarding that issue of battle, of war, belligerency, right, then we can (laughs) co-belligerate, to make up a word. It's shameful. I'm just, I'm embarrassed at myself. For when we wanted to talk about this term and co-belligerency and say, isn't there a better term for this? Because we're not just living in the culture war anymore. There's more to do than that. What's the word? Gee, I don't know. What what would the word be? I'm ashamed that we didn't automatically say, well, I I think the word we used to use for it is cooperation. Uh, because we're so uncomfortable with the idea that we would be able to cooperate with somebody who may not agree with us in every way. And that's where we've sort of come as a culture. We replaced the concept of cooperation with co-belligerency and then became belligerent with everyone. Uh, And we can do better than that. So the challenge here is that doing better than that means being willing to say, oh, I understand you disagree with me about that belief, and yet I'm, I can be respectful of your view on that belief, even though it's different from mine. How can I do that without compromising the sincerity with which I hold my own conviction about things like this? And, and you, I'm sure you get there's a range issues that don't matter at all, whether Melchizedek is actually Jesus or is he just a prefigurement of Jesus. That, fine. You say, well, that doesn't matter at all. But what about when it comes to things that do matter? How are we going to govern our church? Who's going to be able to be a pastor and so on? So, you know, when it comes to day-to-day, you know, things that impact life day-to-day, then we sort of take on this model that says, no, it's, and we don't say my way or the highway, but we we do say to people, here's my way, get off if you're not with me. And so, I, you know, there's a funny thing about belief that I don't think we understand, which is the point that I want to get to today. So now we're going to get on the trail. Now we're going to now we're going to start down the path that I wanted to go down. And it, you know I'm going to start it with this with an example of the end uh, of what I'm talking about and not not explaining why it's the end. Uh, but I can remember when I was very young in ministry uh, having to deal for the first time with someone who had been baptized as an infant or a child not in their own conviction of faith, not in what, 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 we, what we call believer's baptism or adult immersion, but it's not always adults, but believer's baptism. But they had been baptized as part of the, entering the covenant as a child because their family had presented them to the priest or whatever. And I'm, I'm thinking mainly of Presbyterians and Lutherans and, and, and people in other denominations like that. I can't remember who it was. But for the first time, as a very young protege of ministry, 
uh, I was dealing with a, a, a guy who said, who wanted to join our church, and I was the minister of evangelism. And, uh, and, I, and so when I talked to him about baptism, he said, well, I was baptized when I was a baby, and I don't, I don't want to be baptized again. I, it doesn't make sense to me to be baptized again. And I went through all the rational explanation. Well, here's the thing, getting wet's not the same thing as getting baptized, and you know, all that belittling kind of stuff we do to talk about baptism in a different model than we're used to in our own tradition as Baptists, that is. So I went through all that stuff, and it didn't convince him at all. He was just like, nope, can't do it. Well, he wasn't going to be able to be a member of the church, so I went to the, to the person who was my pastor at the time, and I just said, what, you know, what do I do with this? This guy doesn't want to get baptized. It's not because he doesn't like the church. He wants to join, wants to be a part of our fellowship, and so on. And he said, well, look, just, just tell him this. You don't have to convince him that it's right, wrong, or indifferent. Just tell him this. This is how we do it as a church. This is what we do. So you want to be a part of the team. We want you to be a part of the team. This is the uniform we wear. So we're asking you, please just put on the uniform and wear the thing we're wearing, you know? And so I thought, well, that's, it makes sense. You know, it's hard for me to believe anybody would know something I didn't when I was a teenager, but I, I acquiesced. And I went and uh, talked to the guy, and sure enough, he was like, oh, yeah, okay, well, that makes sense. <laughs> I can do that. And so he did it and, and adopted that view because he wanted to be a part of this community, the community that, that we had created, that church that we were a part of. And so, you know, I, I, I experienced this in a slightly different way, to, for a totally different, totally different cause uh, for what I'm describing here, but it is a part of this same picture. And I'll just use baptism as the ongoing uh, connection here to say when I was pastoring, I pastored, you know, now I'm the president of Criswell College. I've been doing higher ed for the last 18 years, really more than that, 22 years overall, but 18 years here at Criswell College. But before that, I pastored a church for 17 years, and I, and I noticed that we would baptize in streaks. So we would baptize, and, and, and often we would have years, we, we were a small church, but we would baptize 50 or 60 people uh, in a year, which is good for a small church. You know, it's not great. It's not, it's not uh, the great awakening in America, but it was significant for us. But they didn't come one a week. It's not like every week we would have a baptism. They would come in groups of eight or ten in a two-week period or something like that, or we would have way more than that on occasion or whatever. And then we would have a dry spell. Six weeks, nobody would get baptized. And, uh, And so I noticed that what was happening was that the community's emphasis on baptism, so we had the event, everybody saw it, and there was a celebration of it, would ignite an interest in others in baptism, and more than just a psychological interest, but also sort of a curiosity about the practice itself. Why do we do this? And they would be responsive to suggestions about following an obedience in this act of baptism, and then their family members would come and see it, and you get the idea that there was sort of a, a momentum that you would gain in the way that people in the 19th century, and that some still talk about it in the 20th century, but I think in different terms, I just don't know what they are, that you would talk about hysteria, not, not, and I don't mean that in the insulting way to women, but I mean in the social hysteria kind of ways where everybody starts seeing these same figures or everybody's responding to the same crisis or everybody breaks out dancing, you know, like that, that weird one back from the Middle Ages. The, you know, that, that, that it's sort of like that. There's a, there's a sense of valuing a thing and seeing it in a community that gives it weight that didn't exist before. And so what I want to do uh, as we're going down this journey uh, on this trail today, is just talk about us as persons and put together uh, the issues that uh, that determine why we hold the beliefs that we hold. 
and, and for a lot of people, and, and when we talk about persons in general, we talk about the difference between motion and action, right? I've talked about this before. Uh, motion is what a rock does when it rolls down a hill. You know, there's no, there's no will involved. There's no volition involved. Action involves volition of some kind. And so when you apply those categories of motion and action or impersonal motion and personal action to human beings, to persons themselves, they're both still present, and some people put an emphasis on the nature of a person or the character that's in a person or even their situation or their context, and then I want to add to that today, community, as the things that shape us to make us what we are. And so you're, you know, you you believe the things you do because you're a product of your nature. You're a product of your psyche. You're a product of your character. You're a product of your situation, your context, your community, and so on. And that means you just hold your beliefs because it's the way your mind happens to believe. You just receive them, so to speak. But then there's a way of thinking of persons as actors. Uh, those who create action. That is, we use our volition. You're making a choice that when you hold a belief, you make a choice. This is not, by the way, today a debate about free will. Love that debate. I would love to go to it. That's automatic for me, but it's not. Uh, the the choice, uh, the, the choice, <laughs> which implies action, obviously, but the way you think about this issue and put together motion and action in a person or regard us as determined or not determined uh, isn't bound up in whether you're reformed or a Calvinist, that is, or, uh, or non-reformed or more Arminian like I am. And I don't mean that in the full theological sense of Arminianism. But anyway, you get the idea. It's, it doesn't require that at all. This doesn't require you to change your reformed views. Uh, but the third option on a person is that, you know, maybe they're not purely guided by their inherited nature. Maybe they're not purely free agents making decisions about whatever they want to believe, whenever they want to believe it. But instead a combination, motion and action, combining in a person so that there's a relationship between our nature and our context, circumstance type stuff, and our volition. And that's where I think we are. And so when you put together a couple of those things, like nature and volition, then you get these, uh, the, you, get a, you sort of get a picture of how we can think about persons coming to a belief. And that's what I want to talk about today, is why we come to believe the things that we do. So if you were to say, for instance, in a person, that only nature, only motion, that, that we are just part of nature, and that motion is all that's happening, and that your psyche is just what it is, and you can't believe other than what you believe. It's just what you were going to become. Even if it feels that way, it's just determined. That's, you know, this would be the motion-only kind of view of a person. That view would say that your psychology, your way of thinking about the world, is determined, completely controlled by your genetics or your environment. And those are the two choices that are normally given. You hear it as the nature-nurture debate, right? So genetics is generally where people go now when they think of nature determining your personality and the ways you're going to believe. Uh, and environment is the nurture side and meaning your family shapes it and your community and your culture and all that kind of stuff, right? These are all a part of saying you're like a pinball and you're being bounced around by the different things that are around you, but you're going to go where gravity pulls you. That's just where your nature is going to take you. There are stronger and weaker views of that form all along a scale on how much might be genetic and how much might be environmental, but that's all about 
you being a product that you become what you are because of other forces on you. In complete contrast to that, there's a view that says you are completely free, that it's all about your choices, that it's action only, that you create or choose your psychology because you're free to do so. You have a volition, you have a will that you use to create who you become. That view, if it's really radical like that, is very closely associated with existentialism. We've had whole conversations about existentialism in other episodes. So I'm not going to get into that right now. That would be the action-only view. I choose my beliefs. I believe what I believe because of me. Nobody makes me believe this, and I didn't believe it because I was raised in this environment or because somebody, you know, whatever, or because my genetics are, you know, I'm just, I believe it freely. Okay, fine. Then there's a way of thinking about us, obviously, and this is, you know, clearly, this is where most people are going to fall, where there's a, a combination of those influences, motion and action, that there's a part of your psyche that's fixed by nature, fixed by the way you were raised. So your genetics and your upbringing, you know, determine certain things about parts of your psyche. But there are also some parts of your psyche that you have freedom to, for instance, accept or reject. Hey, well, this is the way I was raised, but you know what? I'm going to cast that off. I no longer think that way. I'm going to act differently. And maybe you think people can do that. Maybe you can't. I'm saying there are some people who believe that you can do that, right? So that you can accept or reject certain things about your personality, or maybe if not completely reject uh, or completely embrace, that you can at least enhance or mitigate these parts of your personality, right? And in that case, you're actually a creative agent producing beliefs, a person uh, that is different from what your, what your environment would have produced automatically or what your genetics would have produced automatically, but not completely because it's not like you can make yourself fly because you feel like it. So there are some things about your personality that are grounded, you know, just, and that's a metaphor, but I mean a lot of things, not just the fact that you're stuck to the ground. So there's, so in just, just in looking at how we hold the beliefs that we do, and that obviously is a part of having the psyche that we have, that's just relating together the idea of nature and volition, motion and action. How do we put those together? Beyond that, I think what we ignore in our culture, and this is the good part of the trail that I wanted to get to. Not, we haven't arrived at the tiny little waterfall at the end yet. But, you know, the good part of the trail is this con- part of the conversation, that a huge part of that environment, that motion part of making us the persons that we are, is our community. And I've, I've tried so hard, and this is, I think, episode 68, uh, if, I, if I have it right in my head. I may be right or wrong. Don't quote me on the number. But I think it's right. In, you know, I've tried so hard to get across that even though we are individuals, and even though we've gone through the Enlightenment and arrived in this modern era where we believe individual rights are the, the, the greatest thing that matters, and I do respect individual rights, I'm sort of libertarian in my overall view of politics and society and how we should relate to each other. But community is unbelievably important and influential, and in our culture in particular, Western culture I mean, but American culture specifically, it's, it's riding surreptitiously alongside us. It is, it's sneaking in, and we're not aware 
of it being there. We pretend like it's not a part of who we are, but it's a huge part of who we are. Community, and, and, and by the way, community as an environment, in some people's views, and this would be the view, let's take community and volition. So I've got a community that's shaping me, but I've also got that free will thing over here that shapes me, and so my psyche is going to be shaped by one or the other or both. So let's take the first approach for a moment and just say, there are some people who think that your beliefs and your psyche are entirely shaped by your community. Even people during the Enlightenment, so people like David Hume, uh, in his model, culture is the source of everything, everything that we believe, all of our ethics, all of the values that we hold, and so on. Culture is what produces that in us. That's Hume's model. Now, of course, Hume is somewhat radical, but he's radical in the sense of saying we should understand that all these things are coming from the culture. The interesting implication uh, in that is that, you know, it, it, when you take that view, <laughs> if, if every person is being shaped by their community, then every single element of society, good, bad, or indifferent, every single person, in other words, is fulfilling some necessary function within that culture. And I mean by that, on one side, farmers and factory workers are fulfilling different functions in that culture, community, society. Criminals and police, criminals and police, are necessary in that society. Wardens and convicts are necessary in that society. So, you know, and by the way, I will say, those of us who've worked with people who are disenfranchised or chronically addicted or chronically disadvantaged in some way can see why some people see the world this way. It looks for all the world, like our community, our culture, our society is designed to keep some people in the fringes or in the shadows, to keep some people with a criminal mentality, to keep some people on the outskirts of the economy, and to keep other people right at the center of it. I'm not saying it's necessarily the case. In fact, I'm not a motion-oriented person. I'm for the free will and volition. I'm saying if you hold that view of society, that it's determined by social forces, by the community around you, then it does make necessarily the case that everything the community produces is a part of that functioning society and what makes it roll the way that it does. Okay, so there's something to keep in mind. In contrast to that are people who would say, no, 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 my beliefs are mine, my choices are mine, I'm a completely free individual, and community is an environment that's present, but the individual can move completely freely within it. I can do anything I want. On, 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 and on one level, that's just what radicals think they're doing. That This is what radicals believe they're doing. I mean, saying it that way tells you I don't hold this view, right? And, and I don't. Obviously, I'm going to hold the view that melds the two together, which, which I think is the, the place most people sort of naturally end up. <laughs> naturally end up. That's ironic. Anyway, uh, so on one level, radicals are always saying, no, I, I, yeah, I have a context of a community, but I'm swimming upstream against it, you know? So, and they don't, they don't necessarily say this, that, that they're doing this, that they are radical, which means going against what you would expect or what nature would normally produce. Uh, but, you know... <sighs> So, like, like, I wouldn't say fitting in this category of radicals, I wouldn't put Occupy Wall Street 
or militias, you know, the people who are living in, in communes and gathering arms to oppose society or, you know, meaning the state for them, or uh, people who believe they're breaking the system or moving outside of the system or swimming upstream directly opposite the current. It's not just that. Uh, you can hear why that's really a part of the nature of a community to produce people who are like that. It's part of shaping the community and so on. But they are, th those are still movements within the community. They're sort of counter to the community, but they're sort of part of the community, right? It's the waves breaking in different directions. That's fine. But what I really mean by this, the really radical uh, elements, those individuals uh, where we would say, yeah, that's proof that you can be completely radical, completely free, and not bound by your community at all, they, you know, would be the recluses, the homeless, or the individual who only reluctantly participates where absolutely necessary. So, like, I have to have food, but and I can't grow it myself here on the rocks, but whatever. But these people would resist every invitation to cooperate with anyone else in any way whatsoever. Radical skeptics a lot of times, uh, people we would think of sometimes as curmudgeons or something like that, you know, might be evidence of some of that. Ironically, uh, this, you know, that, that view that so the idea that we're radical like that or all curmudgeons or recluses or something obviously most people don't live there that that's almost no one lives there but most of us do have this skewed view of ourselves that says that we're able to live independently of our community pressures no i'm an individual i'm i'm free i can do whatever i want to do we 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 count it sort of as as a point of pride that we think of ourselves that way that's where most of us live, even though it's obvious that we're not really radical at all. And I can think ironically about a time, and I, I don't know which way to take this. I mean, I'll, I'll take it. It's not self-congratulatory or self-condemnatory. I'm just telling you of the experience I had one time. I think I mentioned this in another episode, but if not, I uh, took, took our kids when we were homeschooling them to Glen Rose one day, middle of the week. I was a pastor, so I took a day off in the middle of the week. That was the day that I had off. And uh, we took the kids down to Glen Rose, and we were walking around the, the shop there, and there was a woman in the shop who uh, just couldn't help herself. I mean, she just had to judge us. Shouldn't those kids be in school? You know, kind of thing. And just couldn't, could not keep herself out of it. Yeah, I'm being a little defensive now. Okay, so I'll get back to the point. But she, she said, uh, she, I said that we were homeschooling them, and she said, well, it seems like a hard way for them to learn the lessons of how to keep work hours, business hours, or something like that. And that's, you know, that's what she said. I said, well, you know, I'm not actually training them to be factory workers. Now, I don't have anything against factory workers. I think, you know, the backbone of the country is often held up uh, because of people who work a 40-hour job, show up at 8 and leave at 5 and have to go home and wash their hands before they can eat a meal. I, I love that. I, I, I have nothing against that whatsoever. But the idea that that's the only way to define the work product of a human being tells you how steeply we've defined certain things in our community by the community's expectations. My resistance to that is also evidence of the way our community thinks about those things. So again, I'm not, not necessarily saying she was wrong and I was right or whatever, even though obviously in the moment I felt like I was entirely right and she was entirely wrong. But the point is that community expectation does shape us, even if we're just pushing against it. It does shape us. It's part of the picture of how we think of things. So, I've, you know, I've heard of younger people, and I've heard a lot of younger people do this. I've heard younger people. I mean, I'm in a college environment, so I'm around a lot of, a lot of younger people. 
And, but this happened. This happens to a lot of students. It is funny watching it happen. To a 14-year-old, it can happen, and to a 28-year-old, it can happen. And, and, it, and maybe it happens after that, but I don't see it much past that age. I mean, when people turn 30 or so, they sort of, you know, well, I don't want to be too <laughs> judgmental about it, but they they grow up in some ways. 20-year-olds are great, though, okay? So I love 20-year-olds. Anyway, the point is, I've heard a lot of younger people at this moment of recognition of just how conformist we are in general, our clothes, everything we do, you know, being conformed to the culture, that we become sort of cogs in the giant capitalist machine, you know, that kind of language. Try to lash out at the insipidness and the vacuity of the lives that are around them. Can they not see that they're being used, you know, and so on. I've heard all of that. And, and, and honestly, what they are recognizing is something that we do completely ignore. Recognizing it doesn't make it completely wrong, but it's such a comeuppance for people who've thought that they were completely individualistic their entire lives that it seems like something that should be reared up against, right? So when we recognize how conformist we are in general as people, they lash out against it. And they are recognizing what we've completely ignored, that we actually are, we, and this is, I think, I think this is inherently true, we actually are more than just individuals who happen to meet together at the store every once in a while. That our, our lives really are practically owned, and I don't mean completely, practically, just mean in some senses it appears this way, owned by the normative expectations of the society, the culture, the community that's around us. I mean, just clothing is an example. I'll give some other examples in a moment. Uh, and, and, and if you say, well, my clothing, I, I'm completely, yeah, you know, you're part of this culture's clothing. I mean, just look, travel to the Middle East and see what people wear there. Even just go to Europe and notice the different shoes or belts or jewelry or whatever. And suddenly you realize, Man, I'm, I'm, I am kind of shaped even in my clothing choices. Even the ones I thought were radical are actually in a strain of radicalism that's part of our culture. This is just how we are as people. And it's not, it's not a crisis. It's just something to admit. Yeah, I'm part of a community too. On another level, this is what almost all of us think is true about us. We think the artifacts that we're stuck with, and I mean by us being individuals, back to the, back to the I'm a radical individual, I can do whatever I want part, uh, real quickly before we get to the community. We just think that's what, that's what the case is about us. We look at our community and we say, well, I have to get stuff from them, so I, you know, I can't buy uh, a, a, a sari at the store, so I buy a dress. That's all. It's just an artifact. I'm not shaped by my community or owned by my community. And so we, this would be the facticity of existentialism, by the way, if you, if you were in on any of those conversations. But we think of those as nothing more than necessities, and we choose to use them as we please. So they're like the water around our island or the ground under our feet, but our feet are free, and we're free to do whatever we want on the island that we live on and so on. We don't think of our culture as creating horizons beyond which we simply do not consider ways of living in the world. Uh, which might be, yeah, and, and, and those other ways of living might be common somewhere else, but we don't see over the horizon because we don't even see that there is a horizon. This is the same thing, and I think I've mentioned this before uh, in one of the episodes. This is the same way in which we, we think we don't speak with an accent. 
I think, you know, and, and I've had people say that to me at times. Well, you don't speak with, a, with an accent. What they mean is, well, you don't have a Texas accent. Sometimes I do have a Texas accent. It, it depends on who I'm speaking with. I'm not trying to be hypocritical about it. We just all raise and, and change our idioms and our language to be with the people we're with. I think that's a good thing about human beings. But in, in a lot of contexts, I don't appear to have a Texas accent. So people will say, you don't have an accent. What they mean is, your accent is the same as mine. Or, your accent is the same as I expect from someone who came from Missouri. Or, you know, something like that. We all have an accent. I have an American accent. I don't have a British accent. To the British, the Americans are the only ones with an accent. And they live in London, and they are the only ones who don't have an accent. We all speak with an accent. It's inherent to us. In the same way, we all are partially products of our community. And so the motion and action come together in a way that uh, partially makes me. Community makes part of me. Choices make part of me. My will makes part of me. The community makes part of me. And it's true in the things I was talking about, the kind of clothing I wear, the transportation that I take, whether I ride a bike, for instance, I would, I would love to talk all day about this. Whether I take a car or a bike, some people look sideways at me when I tell them I ride a bike to work as if, oh, you're one of those people. Oh, can you imagine in China how many people are riding a bike to work uh, or in other parts of Asia? I mean, and, and I don't ride a bike on the road. I ride it on trails because for me, not just to be safe, it's just sort of respectful of traffic. I want the Camaro to be able to go 80 miles an hour if he wants to go 80 miles an hour. It's just part of our community. That's how we do things. It's true about clothing, about transportation, about a jillion other things that fit the same category. The type of food you eat, what we think is okay to eat and not okay to eat. Uh, the careers that we think are legitimate careers, the level of education we think is legitimate and so on. All of that comes from it. Uh, I won't take time to do it today, but Robert Nisbet makes this point, and I'll cover this in more detail another day. I made a presentation recently at a National Review Institute meeting of some people just talking about some ideas between conservatism, libertarianism, and, and so on. And part of it is uh, Burke's view, Edmund Burke's view uh, from the 1700s on, you know, what makes for a free society. And his point being that you have to have voluntary associations, the family, the neighborhood, the guild, the church are the ones that he names uh, in order to stand against the arbitrary powers of a government or of a state. So you need these other associations. It's not individual liberty without the constraints of a community. It's just voluntary communities, communities that shape us at a smaller, at a closer, at a more personal level. And so I, you know, I want to, I, I just want to get to the point today far enough, and we'll, we'll talk about this some more another time not the very next episode, but soon. But to the point of saying that, you know, voluntary associations are maybe the most important part of who we are as individuals. They, because voluntary associations are making the point that we recognize that we're shaped by the communities that we're a part of. And we are, we're shaped by the communities we're a part of. It's not hard to figure that out. But also that we get to choose the communities that we're a part of. And so there is a lot of freedom there. And not only do we choose the community, but we also, by becoming a part of it, help shape that community. And so voluntary associations are so important, not because we're like everyone in that community. The whole idea in 1 Corinthians 12 is that the voluntary association of the church 
the community that we're a part of in the body of Christ, and I mean a local body of Christ, where you're rubbing elbows with people and bumping into them. The whole beauty of that community is that everybody's not an ear. Not everybody is an eye. Not everybody's a head. Not everybody's a hand. Do I have to go down the whole list? Can I stop there? The point is we do different things. We have different gifts. We, we fit different ways. We see things different ways. And those are important. That's why the community is important in shaping us to be the best ear, hand, whatever part we actually are within that community. And that shapes who we are as an individual. That's how we see ourselves too. You know, when we describe ourselves and the things that we do, that's part of identifying who we are as a person. You're not a name. You're not just a function, but in some ways, we are the thing that we do and the part that the the organization or the association that we are a member of. So when I say I'm a preacher, I'm I'm not just I don't just preach. I am a preacher, and and that influences who I am, and that's partially shaped by the community that I'm a member of. You get the idea. At least for two reasons, communities are critically important in this process, and I'm almost done. And one of those reasons is the motion. That is, we are influenced by our environment, including our community. The other reason the community is so important, though, is because we anticipate, this is teleological, it's volitional, we have an end in mind and we make choices about it, because we anticipate what we can be by seeing what that community is and then joining it. And the, those associations, those voluntary associations, those communities we become a part of take all kinds of forms, like Burke was talking about, barbershops and poker games, not me, and weekly barbecue or dining groups or, in a different level, your family, your neighborhood, the association of your, your profession, whatever group you're a part of, and meet with and, you know, hold each other accountable with. Um, you know, the whole, the whole nature of what we do, social media followers that you have or the social media people that you follow, the news source that you choose, the entertainment choices that you make, the music that you listen to makes you part of a community that shapes you, not just the person who's speaking on the television and saying, this is the, this is the thing that's true. This is the news you should believe but also the people you hang around who affirm for you that that news is true and so on, or the church that you're a part of, uh, which, by the way, may be chosen precisely because it's similar to the choices that are above that I was just talking about, the family, you know, your neighborhood, or your news sources. If everybody at your church is watching the same news source, what are what's shaping what there? You know, so look, we are we choose we choose our associations because they are comfortable for us, because they make us feel at home in some way, or because they offer to us a vision of something that we value, something that we could be that's different. And so it's not surprising that very often people are choosing an association because of comfortable relations and similar opinions and or even the entertainment value that it has in some way to you know, raise your life above where it is right now and so on. That's fine. But it can also be evidence uh, that our associations are being transformed by the life we have outside of them more than our associations are changing us directly. So in church in particular, the church can be, and this is, you know, what all of us, I think, hope for and pray for, transformative enough to influence the other choices that we make. 
Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be something if, if your church was so influential in your life that it changed your news source? Wouldn't it be amazing if your church was so influential in your life that it changed what entertained you outside of the church? Wouldn't it be crazy if your church was so influential in your life that it made you hang around a different kind of people, that it made you think of your profession differently, that it made you think of your cultural level, your social level, your economic level differently? Wouldn't that be incredible, wouldn't it? It would be almost like the gospel was transformative. That would be ideal. And and in some ways, we see that. And in some ways, I, I think we don't. And I think the great lamentation I've had in my own life over the last few years is realizing how much of that influence comes from the outside of the church, as well as from the power of Christ inside of the church. And, and that's what I hope we will address more uh, in, you know, an upcoming episode. Like I said, not, maybe not the very next episode we won't get to it, but maybe soon enough. So, so let me close this part of the conversation. I, I realize we haven't gotten to the waterfall yet, I admit it. But I, I'll, I'll give a slight view. Maybe way up there around the corner, you can see there's some water flowing. You know, it's this, that beliefs, it, we have to come to learn this, that beliefs are not discrete intellectual units tucked away in abstract calculating minds. You know, motion is influencing our beliefs that in, in this way, we have to have some kind of phenomenological consistency discussion for another day. But you know, the things we see and encounter in the world make us say some beliefs are acceptable, some are not. That's just not going to work because I can see over here that's just not the case. So motion has an influence here. Action has an influence here. We have beliefs that we have partially because we choose them from among living, forced, momentous options, genuine options that we have. Motion and action work together to form us as persons, especially in the context of our community, and and it does this back and forth. We shape the community, the community shapes us, where we ponder among our community, and then decide. We debate in the community and then compromise and come to see things differently so that we can fulfill what Ephesians 4 says, until we all attain to the unity of our beliefs, which also shape our practices, faith, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge. Knowledge is justified true belief, the beliefs that we hold until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which is not a description of an individual. It's a description of the parts of the body coming together into the full stature of Christ. So my beliefs are not just mine. They're a part of what's shaped in me by my community until together we come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. May our beliefs be shaped in that way. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, Keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.